this is Dr. Osesa Levert with another episode of the Way to College podcast. And, uh, you know, the one of the blessings about this podcast is just the amazing opportunity to connect with folks, folks all over the country, all over the world. And today I'm excited. My guest, in, in fact, I, I just met my guest. And so I, I need to ask my guest where he is located. Um, but I'm going to allow him to introduce himself to our audience out there. So, Michael, would you mind introducing yourself? Yes, thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, I'm Dr. Michael Hemphill. I'm in North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, as where I'm currently, you know, working and living uh, at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. I'm an associate professor of kinesiology here, um, having been in that role since uh, 2016. Um, I'm also from North Carolina. I'm from Western North Carolina, a small town called Brevard, which is uh, a lot of people recognize Asheville, which is, you know, kind of a mid-sized town nearby um, in, in the mountains. I've moved around a little bit in between there for education. I think that'll come up in the conversation today. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. Uh, you know, quick, quick side note. So a couple of years ago, I attended a, a conference. It was a really cool community sort of community-based conference out in East Carolina. Mm. Um, and so just beautiful country out there. I enjoyed my time out mm. there. And I had a I have a cousin that lives uh, in the uh, Raleigh-Durham area. So got to spend a, an evening out there. So I, I just, I'd never been. It was beautiful. Um, and so thank you. Thank you again for, for joining me. Michael, I ask all of my guests, if they had to identify a starting point for their educational journey, where would that starting point be for you? So that, I mean, that's a great question. It's a big question. Um, you know, I guess if you ask me on different days, you might come up with different answers. Uh, I'll say this, um, you know, somewhere in middle school, I've, you know, I had an up and down academic journey. Uh, you know, there's times I was kind of an A student who did really well, and there's times I was absolutely flunking out. Um, and uh, my parents had gone through a divorce. My brother, who's three and a half years older than me, was in high school and he just started to get in trouble and act out. And he ended up uh, getting kicked out of school and never went back. So he never graduated high school. And um, he's actually the smart one, you know, like he definitely had more academic potential than I did. There's just no question about it. Um, but somewhere in there when that happened, he made it very clear to me that that was not an option for me that I had to finish school. He really regretted uh, the way he dropped out. And he's, I think he kind of understood that although there are pathways to go back and, you know, finish or get a GED or do, do things, um, they're just not good options uh, that kind of provide the opportunities that he thought uh, he was, he had, and he wanted me to have. And so, that for me was when I think I shifted from, you know, feeling like maybe it didn't matter to knowing that I had to navigate that system, whether I liked it or not, to at least get through high school. Right. And then, you know, the rest wasn't I wasn't thinking about college, but I think that was the education part. I've looked up to him uh, ever since um, for guidance, even to this day uh, when I'm going through challenges as a professor, um, you know, I'm actually thinking about how my brother would handle it, a guy who never finished high school. That's a powerful story. Um, it's a great story. You know, one one question that comes to mind is, you know, your brother dropped out 
left left school. I like to use left, right? Left school. Yeah. Um, and you know, as kids, you know, a lot of the guests that I've spoken to, we get all they talk about the messaging, right? What's the messaging around that? And so, one, I wonder about the messaging that your brother got and received. But for you, what was the messaging? What was the messaging that you were getting about school? Was school important, you know, to your family? Was that, was the messaging that you were getting, was that it was important? Or what kinds of messages were you getting? I think I was getting a message that uh, there's a connection between school and opportunity. Um, and that that the opportunities were kind of time sensitive. Uh, they, they expire with, uh, you know, as you, you finish, you know, your teenage years, that those schooling pathways connecting you to opportunities are, are fleeting. Um, that was a clear message. And I, I, I really had a clear message from both of my grandmothers. Uh, both were very adamant that um, any of their grandchildren were very bright and smart and deserved to be um, in school doing well to have opportunities to go to college. And they conveyed that very strongly. I feel like they passed that through my parents who, who also conveyed it, but it, it hit differently um, from my grandmothers and every academic kind of achievement I've ever made. I kind of think about them and, um, you know, that was always the person I wanted to see how they reacted and, you know, give a hug if, if I had done something, something well. So, um, they had a way of conveying that, uh, I also saw an increasing emphasis in education in my community. Um, in the 1990s, we started to see factories close. Um, there were major manufacturers in town, uh, one related to production of um, kind of paper for cigarettes. And so, you know, in the 90s, we started to regulate that a little bit tighter. That industry contracted the other uh, made film um, for photography and, uh, you know, kind of Polaroid camera type film. And so that started to decline as well. So we, uh, those two companies represented, you know, the retirement of my my dad, my two grandmothers, countless aunts and uncles, um, basically every person I've ever known was at least two degrees away from those two employers. And so for those to leave, um, what was left was really a service economy. And there was a sense that like, you got to get out of here. Um, and if you don't, you're stuck with these kind of opportunities that are going to be, uh, a low salary, kind of minimum wage type salary, and that salary is never going to really grow. Um, and that, you know, wasn't attractive. So that's the kind of messaging that I latched on to um, and kind of was encouraged to say, find that uh, find that way out. For a lot of people, it's thinking about sports. For some people, it's academics. Some others, it's kind of, a, you know, maybe military types of opportunities. But we had a sense that you had to find something to advance yourself. Michael, what was your way out? Mine was college. So I, I'll tell you, I liked, I love, uh, to this day, I love basketball. Um, so you can't, I'm sitting down right now, but I'm uh, tall. I'm six foot six inches tall. And so, and I'm black. So, um, and I've always been tall. So there's always a part of like, my identity is like, people look at you and say, do you play basketball? <laughs> um, and um, so <laughs> that was always a part of like, okay, um, 
is that a pathway for you? And and I had opportunities to play at like my local college, a small, um, what's now I think a division three college, but uh, I just was never that good of an athlete to make that a real realistic pathway. Uh, and thankfully I figured that out. I didn't, I didn't have a misconception that I was going to be an NBA player. Um, I knew that I needed an academic pathway. Um, I'm a first generation college student, so I didn't uh, I didn't understand the stuff about college, which I'm sure, you know, and a lot of people you talk to experience. So. Um, so, for example, I, I grew up in North Carolina. To this day, I'm a big Tar Heel basketball fan. I mean, it's uh, I watch all the games. They're on my calendar. That's how I grew up. Me and my dad, we we talk about the games and, and things like that. Um, I, I don't think I understood, even as a high school student, that the University of North Carolina was anything more than a basketball team. Um, despite me wearing their shirts to school every day, watching their games. I never sought to tour their campus. I never explored whether I could get into that university, whether I could apply to that university. Um, and that's something I reflect on and I, I regret, you know, and I think that um, the system should reflect on that. Uh, but the second thing is I didn't understand is that the University of North Carolina is not just one university in Chapel Hill. It's actually a system of 16 universities um, in the state of North Carolina. And they're one of them I'm employed by now in Greensboro, and they're fantastic universities. Uh, and I mean, they span everything from, you know, a research university to a small teaching focused university, five HBCUs, a university that um, is uh, founded by the Native community and the Lumbee tribe in Pembroke. Pembroke, North Carolina. Uh, it's got everything you could ever want. And it's probably the most affordable university system in the country. Um, so here I am positioned as someone whose parents have uh, lost work through these factories closing and who doesn't have financial resources. And the universities that I applied to were all private universities whose tuition was $30,000 a year or more. <laughs> and so there, that was a... Um, you know, you just kind of get attracted to a brochure or a flyer or, or whatever it was. Um, but I zeroed in on uh, Wingate University, which is outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a small uh, private school. And um, my mom was very keen to take me to tour a couple of colleges. We looked at uh, Lenore Ryan, which is a similar college along the same route. And they had apartments. So your freshman year, you, you live in a dorm. Um, and if you are successful to get to your sophomore year, you get an apartment, a nice apartment, a four bedroom apartment, roommates, and they were really sharp. And that was it. I mean, that's why that's how I decided to go to Wingate. Um, university uh without really having an understanding of like kind of the um finance finances that would be necessary for me to be successful there uh but you know i applied out of high school i got in and i just kind of said to myself we'll just kind of figure it out as we go michael thank thank you for sharing that one thank you for that history lesson or at least uh a lesson on on the North Carolina University of North Carolina system. I wasn't aware of that, um, and so that's awesome. Um, I think, like you, uh, I was a Tar Heel fan only because Michael Jordan went to North Carolina. So yeah. 
Yeah, I always associated it as such. But, you know, you're, you're to your point about applying to private schools, right? Private schools that, that you have a hefty price tag, you know, as a first generation college student, who was guiding you? Was anybody guiding you at your high school or at least saying, Michael, take a look at these schools or um, or are you doing it or were you doing this on your own? I, I was leading the charge on my own. Uh, my mom provided some assistance. Uh, I don't believe the high school had a good system for supporting students. And frankly, I don't believe um, they saw me as a student who was um kind of on that particular pathway. Um, so I, I let me I, stop you right there. Yeah. Cause that, that's a powerful mm-hmm. statement. They didn't mm-hmm. see me as a student on that pathway. What do you mean by that? So I certainly wasn't approached with, uh, you know, a conversation about let's look at what these opportunities might be and, and where you fit into them. Uh, but I remember that certain things stick with you and I, I remember um, I took the SAT and um, I I was around like the guidance people who must have been a hallway type thing or something. And I got a thousand on the SAT, which isn't a great score, but it is a score that um, qualifies you to get into kind of a, a decent college. Uh, and I remember they people being surprised at that. And, you know, there was just this sense that like, oh, we didn't think you would score that on the SAT. Um, and I, I just had a sense that I had not been looked at as someone who should get connected to opportunities uh, that I would be eligible for given a, you know, kind of a mediocre SAT score. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't have those types of connections. I, I just have to assume that, you know, I mentioned the UNC system schools, I have to assume that they have ways that um, these universities connect with students who are citizens of the state and eligible for those institutions. Um, and I, I never had that. Um, if I did, I think I would have explored one of our public schools and, you know, it, it would have been um, better for me in a lot of ways. Um, but there's something about the um, the small private schools that really attract um, some first generation students who don't have kind of the fluency to understand the the public system, uh, and I've seen, I've continued to see that with with young people from my hometown that I try to help out even till today. Wow, wow, thank you. You um, you decided to go to Wingate, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. What was that transition like for you, particularly as a as a first generation college student? Yeah, it was it was difficult. I mean, definitely um, looking back on it, uh, it was I, I didn't do well. Um, my first year I was in, uh, I had some behavior issues within like the first week I, you know, with the orientation, uh, got with, maybe you would say the wrong crowd, but it was a crowd that seemed cool. Right. At the time. Um, and you know, we were hanging out in the dorms, not doing anything too crazy, but you know, next thing you know, there's some alcohol around and, um, things like that. And we were, we were in the dean's office before the first day of class. Um, and I remember, uh, in fact, that the police was involved before the first day of class, the chief of police in this tiny little town took our student ID and said, I'll give these to the dean and let him decide whether you get to go to school here or not. 
<laughs> so here I am. But, you know, this was my like introduction to, to college. Um, but, um, you know, it, it we met with the dean and, you know, we kind of got a little slap on the wrist and had to go through some uh, programming around uh, understanding choices and things like that. Um, but it that symbolized really my first year uh, at the school. I didn't take things seriously. Um, I, I finished the year with a 1.2 GPA and uh, um, wasn't sure I would even go back because the cost was oh, absolutely overwhelming. I mean, I maxed out my student loans. Um, my family was doing things that they really shouldn't do to try to pay, you know, these, they divide your bill up into eight installments and every installment was like, is this actually going to get paid this time? Or, you know, um, so it, it was really tough. I, uh, I went, like I said, I went home that summer and not knowing what I'd do if I even would go back. And I think what I decided was I mentioned my grandmother's being an influence and they, they didn't know that I was struggling in school. Uh, uh, my mom didn't know for a long time, but eventually they send a letter home of some sort because, you know, I guess the way the finances work, because there's like FERPA laws, they're not supposed to reveal things, but I guess if your bills are set up a certain way, they can reveal. So there wasn't like a letter that went home. And so it was like, what's going on, you know, um, with this, you're flunking out, you're on uh, kind of a behavioral probation type thing. Um, and I think what I said to myself, I was like, you know, I would have actually been totally comfortable flunking out of school. I would have had no problem going back and like looking people in the eye that I would not have been embarrassed or ashamed or anything. But I was like, I would really, uh, I just would rather do it like on, on the merits. Like I'd rather just go to school and actually flunk out, like go to school for a semester, show up to class and try. And then if it's, and then if I don't pass, I don't pass. And I, I'd be perfectly fine with that. And um, I I wasn't doing that. And so I kind of decided that what I was going to do was go back and really apply myself uh, and try to get involved in positive activities uh, and just see what happened, you know? And I thought, well, if I want to get involved in things that are uh, not appropriate for college, I can just go home over winter break and do that stuff. I can go home in the summer, you know, <laughs> and I really did a pretty good job of like kind of sectioning it off. And I, I just dove into, um, the education. I mean, I was in, if there was a student club that had a role for me, I was involved in it. I was, uh, if they had a guest speaker on campus, I was going, I was going to it. I mean, that was my strategy it was like, you're just going to go and find out if you're cut out for this. And, um, and I was absolutely cut out for it. I mean, from that point forward, I was one of the best students that universities ever had. Um, and so I always, uh, you know, I always like that notion of give yourself a chance to like show people what you're really made of. Sometimes, uh, sometimes things get in the way of that. That's a, that's a great story. That's a great story. You know, <laughs> I often ask my guests throughout the interview you know, particularly when when they hit on on those moments, the moment like you just described, where you here you are with this less than stellar GPA after your first year and you've got to make a choice. Do I stay and stick it out, really apply myself or do I walk away? 
right? Do I leave and then pursue something else? For, you know, we're coming up upon finals for a lot of students, most universities, right? And a lot of students are already experiencing that, right? They're already experiencing, I had a terrible first semester. Um, and, you know, thinking about, I have a choice. What advice would you give somebody who finds themselves at this at this crossroads of, I had a bad semester, I don't even know if I'm cut out for this? Mm. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I leaned on is like, so the campus has a kind of a broad array of resources and opportunities for students to connect to. And I really encourage students to look at that closely and try to make some of those opportunities uh things that you connect with whatever it is that makes sense for you it could be volunteering it could be getting involved in uh groups that support students who are struggling through kind of mentoring tutoring sorts of things um but there's a lot of resources out there that sometimes students are not aware of i know that as someone who works at a university now sometimes there's scholarships that we never get applications for and because that we're just not connecting with students the way that we need to um so the first thing i'd say is like find those opportunities to connect with the second thing is um find people who are going through what you're going through and um you know sometimes when you're struggling like you need to find somebody who you can confide in and who can be a support and i can assure you at a university there are other kids who are struggling um so make those connections uh, the final thing i'll say is um there are people on the faculty and staff who really uh are there to support students who are struggling, who really will go out of their way to do that. Um, I was the beneficiary of that a number of times, actually. Uh, but reach out and make that connection, too. Um, I try to make on my own campus, I try to make myself available to students. And once or twice, I've had um, people approach me that I've been able to help. But, um, you know, try not to struggle in silence and find the way that you can make a connection to help you succeed from that university at that university. That's beautiful. Beautiful. And, and, uh, wonderful advice, Michael, you, uh, recommit yourself to your education. And in, as in your words, you become one of the best students the university's ever had. Yeah. So what was next for you? What's next in your educational journey? Yeah. So I, um, you know, I ended up getting myself together at Wingate. So I mentioned having a 1.2 at the end of my freshman year. I graduated with the 3.6. And so that's still with that freshman year weighing it down. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I took a lot of pride in that. I fin I got the university's uh, top honor that they give to the graduating male for leadership and scholarship and service. Um, and along that path, I had a couple of internship opportunities that I I did. And one of them was with a group. It was called the National Association for Sport and Physical Education. It was uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, when I was there, I had kind of a project. And uh, at the end of my term, we I would present it to their board of directors. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kept finding in undergrad that opportunities just lead to other opportunities. And so this was an example of that. This internship was this amazing opportunity. Now I'm presenting before the board of directors and I give this 10 minute presentation. I was nervous. It was, you know, uh, probably not the best delivery. And 
at the end of it, the president of the board, he was kind of standing against the wall and I said, any questions? And he raised his hand. And so I called on him for the question and he said, you're coming to Purdue. Um, uh, He's, you know, I want you to come to Purdue University. Um, And I didn't know what to say to that, you know, Um, and I, you know, but he offered me an opportunity to come to Purdue. Uh, I remember telling one of my aunts, I said, you know, this man wants me to go to Purdue. And, you know, I wasn't too sure about that. And she goes, boy, I'll buy you a coat. You better get up there. Because, <laughs> you know, it's cold. I'm from North Carolina. We don't do the cold. So, um, uh, but I, that, that, that message actually was, that really stuck to me. That was when she said that, I was like, you just, you have to go, you have to take this. And it was a master's degree opportunity. So it was two years. And I was like, hey, you can do anything for two years um, and then see what to do. So I, I went to Purdue to get a, a master's degree uh, in their kinesiology department. And, um, you know, it's a two-year program. As I said, I had what we call an assistantship. Um, and that means that I had 10 hours where I worked with my major professor on his research program. Um, and then 10 hours that I was able to teach. And so I was able to get teaching experience doing physical activity courses at Purdue. And in exchange for that, I got uh, my tuition fully paid for, had no expenses whatsoever for my education at Purdue. And then I had a small kind of monthly stipend, enough to pay rent and um, and just just enough to get by for those two years. Um, and so I got toward the end of that program and needed to, once you reach the end of a master's program, you often need to complete a thesis project. And so um, as I looked at my thesis option, I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And then when I thought about the prospect of graduating, um, I didn't know what I would do then either. Like, where would I go? What kind of job would I get? Um, And so there was an opportunity to switch my master's degree into a PhD program. Um, And they, they were happy to have me do that. And so the idea was, hey, do the PhD program for a year. If you don't like it, you can then walk away with your master's degree. Um, So that's how I just all the sudden found myself in a PhD program without necessarily intending to be there. Um, But, you know, I loved it. I loved the people that I worked with. My advisor was very supportive. um, And I think he understood some things about me being, you know, a first generation student who maybe wasn't always up to speed on certain things that some students are. But um, he he really provided the type of support that I needed to to think about being a PhD student as a as a first generation student. Wow, um, ah, man, what a great opportunity! Yeah, man, really. what a great opportunity, My, Michael. I want to take a step back. Yeah. How did you because you you pursue a master's and then you know roll it into a PhD in kinesiology? How did you settle on kinesiology? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So uh, it goes back to Wingate. You know, I um, it, I was unfocused, as I described, uh, and you kind of need to select a major uh, in undergraduate. And so for me, I just kind of went to the catalog and they had a major and they called it sport management. Um, and I just knew that I like to watch sports and I had played sports. And so I just kind of picked it thinking, you know, that'll be a good place for me. Um, and eventually along the way I got into it, uh, and I enjoyed being around sports and learning about, uh, 
teaching sports activities and how do you move and how do you develop? Um, and that kind of grows into this area of kinesiology, which is the study of human movement. Um, so by the time I finished, uh, I had a, an undergraduate degree effectively from a kinesiology department um, and moving into the master's degree, I was able to be a little bit more focused on an area we sometimes call sport pedagogy, which focuses on um, learning and instruction of, of sport skills. Uh, and so at each level, I was able to get a little more focused on that, get into the research, um, have some hands on experience in terms of um, field based uh, opportunities. And that's what kind of brought me brought into focus career paths that might be available to me, whereas I'd started out thinking, well, you know, I'm just going to choose sports because I've experienced sports in my life before. Mm. Okay. Okay. You, um, you're doing this master's, they offer you an opportunity to roll it into a PhD, try it out for a year. Um, what was next for you? How did that, did the transition work? Okay. It worked pretty well. Uh, I, um, I mean, going back to your very first question about education, um, there was a point at which I realized, so I'm, I'm a black male and I never had a, um, a person of color as a teacher until I was in my PhD studies. Um, and, you know, I just had never thought about that until then. But, um, I think I realized, you know, maybe I could be at the front of the classroom for somebody to make, to, to represent that, um, that identity. You know, I think that's important for, for everyone to see that diversity at the front of the classroom. Um, but we had a guest speaker uh, come in. He was from uh, university just about an hour away, uh, young African-American. And he came in and he was presenting his research and his research was all focused on young people, how they connect to sports and physical activity and how it connects to culture. Um, and he had taken students on uh, these study abroad type trips to Kenya and um, other other places. And it just was like, wow, you can you can think about this this work um, around things that you're passionate about, around your identity. Um, I just had never seen that. Um, I just didn't have that conception of what you might be able to do with this this line of work in terms of getting a PhD. Um, so that and I, then I later had a history professor I took who was African American and had you know that similar impact. But um, that really inspired. I wanted to become a professor because I felt like I could contribute um, in that my voice could really change the direction of the field of kinesiology, which is has lacked that type of uh, diversity. Um, so thankfully that gave me focus because a PhD, you have to be very focused um, at some point on an area of study um, and you need to develop an area of expertise. And so that, that really helped me develop that focus and that passion that I needed to wake up every day excited about um, going to school. And uh, sometimes I call it nerding out. <laughs> so. Man, I, I love, I love that. Just that perspective of not one, not having representation, seeing anybody like you and thinking I could be right. The first faculty member for somebody else, somebody like me, somebody in my shoes, you upon completing your PhD, what was next for you? 
Yeah, so um, finished in December of 2011 uh, with a PhD. I was um, 28 years old or 27. I turned 28 about two weeks later. Um, so at first it was just like, I'm weird and like, how is this? People are calling me doctor now. Uh, it was like, so, uh, but um, I had a job opportunity in Charleston, South Carolina, the College of Charleston. Um, there was actually a former Purdue professor who had uh, become department chair at Charleston a few years prior um, in their kinesiology area. And I had built a relationship with him. So he knew who I was. Um, and they had it was kind of a one-year position we call it a visiting professor position uh in higher ed at times and so i i applied and got a, a term limited position in charleston which was uh which was nice it's, you know it's near the beach it's a really cool town um but it was about four hours from family um and i always wanted to be in the southeast um so uh got that job and interestingly as soon as you when you're in a visiting line you you want to do the best you can at your current job, but you immediately have to start preparing for other jobs because your job has an end date. And in higher education, uh, jobs are not, you know, they're not as readily available as you might hope. Um, so, you know, the year that I got the College of Charleston job, I mean, that was pretty much the only job available for me to even apply to. Um, so it wasn't like I could say, oh, I'll, I'll apply for a job the next town over. Or, I mean, it's really like, you've got to get this opportunity that's in front of you. Um, so the next year I actually interviewed again at College of Charleston for a full-time tenure track uh, position. I think the only other place that year that had a job was uh, University of Utah. Um, and so you're thinking, you know, pretty widespread and, uh, I, I did um, interview and was accepted into uh, Teach for America at that time because I needed that backup option. And so I was considering, you know, going and doing some work in urban schools for a couple of years if if the higher ed option didn't work out for me. Um, but I did end up getting the, the tenure track position at the College of Charleston, which uh, was my goal. So I withdrew from the Teach for America option and um, and stayed there and ended up being there for uh, four years total, three years on the tenure track position. Uh, and had a wonderful experience at College of Charleston um, and would have never wanted to leave really, but um, UNCG, UNC Greensboro in my field is, uh, is a top-notch kinesiology program. Historically, it's, uh, I, I like to say, we punch above our weight. Um, we, uh, and we have a doctoral program. Uh, I think our, we have, there's a, a ranking that the National Academy of Kinesiology does, and we're in the top 15 of that ranking. And so it's rare to see a regional college uh, compete in the same arenas, places like, you know, uh, University of Illinois or Michigan, um, so some of the flagship universities. Um, so this was, to me, was almost a dream job type of thing. Uh, so when in 2015, when the job opening came at Greensboro, I applied for that. And, uh, you know, here I am, uh, was successful in that. Michael, how far is uh, UNC Greensboro from your hometown? It's a three-hour drive, and um, it's it's nice. It's one hour closer from the Charleston, and it, it does make a difference. I mean, I could do it. Sometimes I do a kind of a weekend 
trip home. I've even done a day trip before for something, you know, if I could needed to yeah. schedule wise. Uh, so I try to have a niece and nephew and like to get home a few times a year. Um, so it's, it's really nice. It is, um, you know, from uh, that uh, 1.7 was 1.72 GPA your freshman 1. year? 1.2, yeah. 1.2. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From, from, from the student who, you know, as you said, may, wasn't viewed as, as being on that track, being on that college track to that 1.2 GPA to coming to where you're at now, you know, one, congratulations. That's quite the journey. Um, Thank you. Two, you know, what you, you, you gave us, you know, some advice for the students that find themselves at the crossroads, but for somebody who's made the journey, what would you, uh, what would you like to impart on our listeners? Um, wow. Uh, so I think a big part of my success was finding things that I'm interested in and pursuing that. And so in education, uh, it, you know, a lot of it is about self-discovery and learning and passion. I always tell students, it doesn't have to be punishment. And so, for example, I encourage my students nowadays, we have so much, you know, kind of social media. So people are on their phone and they're not. Re- so I, I was just telling a class the other night, it's like, you should try to read a little bit, um, like read books. Uh, and it could just be maybe two a year if that's all you can do that's fine, but that it doesn't have to be a punishment. Like if you're a basketball fan, then go find a cool memoir about a basketball player or a, a book about basketball and, and read about that. Um, but give yourself an opportunity to engage in kind of scholarly discourse and conversation uh, in, in a way that kind of pulls you away from the um, the sprint that is our kind of communication patterns. So education shouldn't feel like punishment. I think sometimes that's how we think about it. It's like, oh, I can't wait till the weekend. Oh, I can't wait till the summer. Oh, I can't wait till school's over. It's just excitement to move through it. And it actually doesn't have to be like that. Like what it, what are the things that you like to do and like to learn about? And when you find that interest space, then it's okay if it's challenging a little bit. Like you probably will enjoy being challenged to learn more, to do better, um, you know, to see how other people do things different. So I think that's a key. And I think this is where sometimes we don't do well in uh, K-12 education is sometimes I feel like we're telling kids, you got to learn Shakespeare. And I'm like, well, that's fine. But like some of them are interested in like hip hop and let them read about hip hop, like let them read about, uh, some of the creative writing that's happening in that space and see if we can connect to them. And then they might grow to understand that, like, even though I'm a hip hop person, I can actually learn something from seeing how other people have communicated in this way that seems Shakespearean and, and, and different, so to speak. Um, so that's my message is like, challenge yourself to find an area of interest and passion whether it's, um, you know, in the books or it's more applied, like service oriented um, and universities, this is something that they're very good at is finding um, public facing opportunities to serve and help out where there's a need. Um, and then when you get into that service opportunity, then learn more about it. So if you're working on, you know, you're serving at a um, 
to give an example at a, a food pantry type situation. That's great. So go help out because those people need help. But then learn a little bit. Why is it that people are facing that issue of food insecurity? Like, what are some of the policies that underline that? Like, and can you make a difference in that space? Right. Because can you show up at a meeting um, to show that you're, you're someone who cares about that? Or can you organize people to um, to vote for a cause that would advance that that issue? So that that would be the type of advice I'd give is, you know, lean into your interest and your passion and don't don't fall for this message that education has to be this boring grind <laughs> that you just survive until completion. <laughs> oh man true yeah <laughs> thank you so much that's uh wonderful wonderful advice michael thank you for sharing that i i couldn't agree more um you're um you know finally i think is because I, I, I do want to be mindful of our time you know um what is it what is it that you're working on now and uh you know what are you looking forward to i would say um so I, I always look forward to the the work in my role as a professor. I'm now an associate professor at tenure uh, at the university. And that's that's something that is a kind of a prized possession in higher education. Um, and it gives us uh, a little bit of autonomy in deciding how we structure our work. Um, so I, I still have to report every year and I, I'm accountable to the university. But um, I have the ability to decide what I want to um, research, what I want to uh, focus my time on, the way I want to teach my class, uh, the types of people I want to collaborate with, uh, types of conferences I attend. Uh, so there's a lot of like independent ability to shape your experience. And I enjoy that and always look forward to like what's next. Um, so along that path, um, I'm really excited and passionate about restorative justice, and I consider myself a student of that now. And so how this happened is um, I always uh, believe that sport can be used as a tool to help young people be better people, just develop life skills and um, set goals for themselves and just be, be a better person because you played the sport. And I've always been frustrated that I don't think sports um, serves that purpose well for a lot of young people. And so in my academic career, I've always tried to understand that and, and find ways to promote a sports system that like works for everyone, even if you're not actually very good at playing the sport. Um, and so I went to uh, New Zealand, I had an opportunity to do like a study abroad program. And while I was there, I learned that they're passionate about restorative justice and it has a strong connection to their uh, indigenous Maori population, um, their, their justice system in New Zealand. And so I'm like, well, this is interesting. Tell me more about this restorative justice. And um, the more they talked about it, I'm like, that's, that's kind of the value system that I've been thinking about for all these years regarding how sports should be deployed. Um, and it's about, you know, valuing everyone for their strengths, um, addressing people's, the harm that people may have achieved and building community. Um, and so as soon as I saw that, I, I made it my mission to learn about restorative justice and to connect that to sports. 
And so I've, over the years, I've visited New Zealand a couple of times to kind of learn about this and think about how it applies. And I um, have a program in Greensboro, we call it restorative youth sports. Uh, and we work with young people in sports programs and in school physical education classes to introduce them to the values of restorative justice about around relationship building, building community and resolving conflict um, all through playing sports. Uh, and that's been a space that's been been challenging and very re rewarding for me because I get to learn about like how can you take these ideas that kind of sound good um, when you talk about them and like put them in into practice. Um, and that can be messy. There's good days. There's bad days. But I get to challenge myself to say like this is worthwhile to try to think about how sport can be uh, more impactful for society and to have some some positive impact in that space. Um, so that's kind of the space I work in now. And um, I get to wake up thinking about things like that every day. I get to uh, work with undergraduate and graduate students who might be interested in that topic and try to help them learn and develop and then see them go off and do creative things that I certainly could have never never thought of. Um, so I'll, you know, that passion and excitement probably can carry me for the rest of my career in some ways. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what I look forward to. Oh, Michael, man, I, I, um, you know, when I jump on these interviews, I never know what to expect. I always look forward <laughs> to the stories, but you know, I'm always excited and surprised with the work that folks do and, and to hear. So for, for me, I think, you know, I work in this in this world of of uh, educational consultant, and so I'm always look, coming across like our you know proposals, requests for proposals for innovative educational programming and after school programming, and um and so as soon as I heard that, as soon as I heard you know restorative justice and you know how do you, how to use the power of sport to fulfill this work, and man, that's powerful. That is really powerful, really exciting. And and I think for, for anyone who grew up playing sports, you know, I think we can see we can see the potential of this work. So so one, thank you. Thank you for doing this work. Mm -hmm. Um and thank you for 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 creating a space, I think, for for like as you said, undergraduates and other graduate students to explore and to have a little fun with this. Because I think, yeah. like you said, right, leaning into the things that interest you and the things that call to you. Uh, this certainly sounds like something that absolutely calls to you and, and something that you can connect with. So congratulations on this. This is exciting stuff. Um, you know, Michael, as we transition out, any final words before we go? Uh, I'll say thank thanks to you for creating this platform and cultivating this really important conversation. Um, I really look forward to listening to some of the past episodes um, that you've already done. And uh, I'm just glad you would, you know, allow, give me space to share my story and my message is something that I'll be able to share with family and friends and, um, you know, just, just be very excited about. Um, and I'll mention, you know, with your focus on um students who are thinking about that transition many of them may be first generation and identify as uh from a minority group uh i've been really thankful that unc greensboro is um really stands out of the crowd in that space um so if anyone's looking in north carolina certainly we can be a resource we're the most diverse university in the state of north carolina and I think about half of our students are um 
first generation students. And we've we figured out how to do some things well um, to help students be successful. Um, and with that said, I think we're still willing to be reflective and realize that like this this uh, helping students, uh, it, there's no secret sauce to it, right? So you might do well with one and the next one, it might not go as well. And so I feel like we're still positioned in a place where it's like, hey, we constantly have to get better and know who our students are and reach out to them. Um, and so I say that because sometimes uh, in the national public discourse, we completely overlook these types of universities. Um, you know, if you're looking at a news story about uh, a university right now, there's this whole thing about, uh, you know, Harvard and Penn and so, whoever else it was testifying before Congress. And there seems to be no interest beyond those Ivy League institutions and maybe your very top public institutions where the, the vast majority of students are going to be at a university like you and I have worked at. Um, and I think it's problematic that they don't um, get the attention they need. Wow. Thank you. No, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Michael, if, if my platform, if you can utilize my platform to, to engage other students, uh, even in your, 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 at your own university, or um, if you think of anyone else who, who you, whose story you think it would, they, you know, deserves to be told or would be willing to share their story, please let me know. I'm like I said, I'm always looking for guests. I'm always eager to share these stories because there's so many just wonderful stories out there just waiting to be told. Um, yeah. So thank, thank you again. Um, this concludes another episode, the way to college podcast. Thank you to our listeners, listeners out there. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Michael Hemphill and um, make, make sure you share the podcast with one person. Really appreciate it. Thanks. And uh, we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.